The COVID cases keep on coming and tickets are handed out. We shouldn't be discussing if we use masks or not. Mask mandates draw backlash. It just needs to stop. This is overreach. I do think South Florida you know, is definitely stabilized and I think Miami is showing some signs of improvement as well. South Florida, still the state's hotspot. 90% of our ICU beds are filled. We're at 17 new cases per day, so that's a significant flattening, but we're still not seeing, we're not in the decline yet. Short-term scramble and long-term planning. When schools open on August 19th, it will be 100% e-learning model. Broward schools will start virtual. Miami-Dade, no decision yet. Keeping these children home is going to create a bigger gap. And it's back to the future. I'm not here just to get the title again. For one of Miami-Dade's mayoral candidates, it's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. Welcome. As we come on the air today, the new state numbers are just in and they show Florida added more than 12,000 new COVID cases. That is a third of full third of those are in Miami-Dade and Broward counties. South Florida does remain the epicenter. Numbers, though, of course, need context and a snapshot of what that may be comes in the city of Miami that this week increased its fines and issued citations to people not wearing face masks and even not wearing them properly in public. And the mayor, Francis Suarez, suggested that wearing masks at home would do more to stop the spread in a city where it's not uncommon for multiple generations of a family to live together. The city of Miami has been a leader in mitigation efforts under the leadership of Mayor Francis Suarez, one of the first elected leaders in the country who came down with COVID-19. Happily, he has fully recovered and he joins us now by way of Skype. Mayor Suarez, great to see you. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Good to be with you both. It's an honor. Mayor Suarez, if you would, give us sort of a up-to-date status about where you believe the city of Miami stands right now in fighting this, uh, this horrific uh, epidemic pandemic that we are in. Are you gaining ground? Is it gaining ground? Are you standing still? Or are you making progress? Well, we've been making progress uh, since July 10th. July 10th was the date where we had the highest uh, rapid rate of ascension in terms of the growth curve uh, for new COVID cases. That was at 125 new cases per day. Uh, that was the highest rate of acceleration. Since then, the rate of acceleration has declined to, as I said in, in, the, in the beginning part, 17 new cases a day. That means that uh, every single day, and, and we're averaging somewhere in the 2800 range, uh, we're adding uh, about 17 more cases uh, to that 2,800 number. So, you know, we have a very, very high level of, uh, of sickness in our community. Uh, obviously, when we closed down the first time, our high point was 533 cases. And our high point just a few weeks ago was 3,500 cases. Uh, we didn't have a great reporting uh, this weekend with uh, a few days over 3,000. Uh, today's reporting was under 3,000, which is which is a, a slight improvement, uh, but you know, we're sort of trudging along right now. 
You know, Mayor, I, I will say I remember local epidemiologists were saying that we actually are still two weeks away from what they predict will be the peak in the in the second or end of the first week or the second week in August. But obviously this week, something you believed in the city of Miami was not working because all of a sudden penalties got much stricter, uh, much tougher, $100 per violation per person. A business might be closed for a month at a time. So what do you, it looks like you are relying on more consequences because people just aren't following what you've done so far. Yeah, we're relying on the advice of our experts as well. You know, our epidemiologists, our hospital administrators are telling us what we need to focus on is enforcement. We need to make sure that people are actually following the rules. And so, as you said, you know, in terms of businesses, if a business is not following the rules, they can get shut down the first time for 10 days, the second time for 15 days, and the third time for 30 days. Uh, likewise, with the masks, if you're not wearing them in public, you can get a $100 fine. And, you know, listen, I empathize with those uh, that, uh, you know, think that that's taking away their liberty. But at the end of the day, it's really, to me, no different than a, you know, texting while driving rule or wearing your seatbelt. These are things that we implement as a society, they're rules, to make sure that people are safe. And this is a rule that will probably be, most likely be temporary um, for a period of time until we get this under control and then it'll go away, unlike uh, the mass, unlike the seatbelt rule and unlike uh, you know, a, a texting while driving rule. So you know, I understand that there are people that get upset about it, but at the end of the day, uh, we're doing this because we think it's in the best interest of the health and safety of our, of our residents. Yeah, uh, Mayor Suarez, we know from various polls and anecdotally, most people certainly approve and are wearing masks, think it's the right thing to do. This week, uh, one of our camera crews uh, from Local 10 News was out at a park when your officers started writing tickets to people not wearing masks. I want you to hear what one young man said who got a ticket. It's so ridiculous. I, I don't know if I could bring myself to actually participate in this insanity. I feel silly because there's this non-existent uh, pandemic. Well, he is simply wrong. It is not a non-existent pandemic. But Mayor Suarez, what would you say to anybody who believes that their constitutional rights are being violated by being told that they have to wear a mask or social distance? You know, this is one of the most unfortunate things that's been happening in our society nowadays is that, you know, these, uh, these sort of theories, if you will, get pushed in social media and they get a lot of traction. In social media, I get a tremendous amount of, of social media posts and, and criticisms about people's constitutional rights being violated. I actually went through um, the emergency orders that we rely on uh, that are based on the Florida Constitution, the city charter, uh, a state statute, the governor's emergency order, our emergency order. So it, it relies on a variety of different uh, laws and constitutions uh, to implement what is what is basically a very simple rule for public safety. I don't understand why people have such a hard time with it. Um, they don't seem to uh, co complain anymore about having to wear a seatbelt or not being not or having to stop at a stop sign or at a at a street light. You know, these are all rules that are put in place to create order and to protect people uh, from themselves and from others. And it sounds like. Aside from the actual rule, the messaging is is really important. And I want to bring up a couple of things that happened this week. Uh, there was a an individual who was cited and given a citation, an expensive one, for wearing a mask but below his nose, so wearing it improperly. And then there was a restaurant in Coconut Grove who was closed down for a day for seating a family of five instead of four outdoors. Certainly, uh, this is the letter of the law, but is that the spirit of the law that you want to send a message about? You know, I spoke to our city manager about that. You know, I, I, I don't want us uh, to, to be doing things that are going to hurt businesses 
because there's a, a very technical small violation. Um, I think that the objective was that there were people that were abusing of uh, the fact that, for example, restaurants uh, were acting as if they were nightclubs, uh, things of that nature. We're not here uh, to make sure that everyone is, is you know, perfectly in tune with every single thing at every single moment. I think it's more about, this, like you said, the spirit of the law. So we talked about that, and I think the manager reduced a couple of restaurants from a 10-day closure to a one-day closure. And I think both those restaurant owners were uh, were thankful and also at the same time understood the gravity of why we have to enforce so vigorously. Yeah. Mr. Mayor, about 10 days ago, you announced that you were going to meet with about 25 business leaders in the city of Miami to discuss the possibility of maybe, maybe having to go back to a lockdown, stay-at-home situation. Uh, here we are, 11 days after you said that. Did you meet with them, and is that still a possibility? I did meet with them. I met with them actually twice, uh, two Fridays in a row. And of course, it's still a possibility. You know, we have not, and we will never take off uh, the option of potentially issuing a, sh a shutdown order, a stay-at-home order. Obviously, it's a remedy of last resort, if you will, because technically it is the last thing essentially that we can do um, before, uh, you know, but without having any further uh, ability to do more. So, you know, for us, it's something that we want to do it in consultation, not just with uh, the business community, but we want to do it in consultation with the, with the county, um, which has a, somewhat of a supervisory jurisdiction over the city. And uh, I've been doing that. I've been meeting with the county mayor three or four times uh, over the last two weeks as well uh, to try to make sure that whatever we do uh, to the maximum extent possible is coordinated with the county. So we are having those conversations. They've been very fruitful. You'd be surprised that a lot of business owners, there's a variety of different opinions and perspectives. It's actually very beneficial. And it's not all uh, don't close us, actually. Um, they have a, a variety of different opinions from a variety of different uh, perspectives. Mayor Suarez, we appreciate your time this morning. Hope you and your family remain well and safe. Thank, Thank you, Mayor. Mike. Thank you, Glenna. The rules are a bit different in Broward, as are the consequences as that tool to stop the spread. Broward Mayor Dale Holness joins us next. This week, Broward County also got tough on people and businesses violating the mask and social distancing orders. There was some pushback, though. The latest lawsuit challenging the mask order was filed right there in Fort Lauderdale on Friday. Broward's Mayor Dale Holness is here today via Skype as he has been in the past couple of weeks because, Mayor, Broward has really focused on enforcement. And you heard our uh, last segment with Miami's mayor that they're doing the same thing. Uh, you're doing a bit differently, though, aren't you? Yes, we're working closely with our cities and we're focusing heavily on uh, our businesses to make sure that they're complying. We're working to sh shut down the parties that were occurring overnight, uh, really strict on that. Our curfew is helping us with that. Uh, we had reported over 1,200 party calls from parties in neighborhoods uh, that BSO responded to. Uh, that's down now because of the curfew. And, and we know that many of these parties have hundreds of people sometimes uh, not wearing facial covering, not uh, social distancing, and that caused a lot of the spread. That's why we see a, a downward trend in the average age uh, because a lot more young people were getting affected. Yeah. I guess uh, to follow up on Glenna's question, Mr. Mayor, uh, have behaviors significantly changed? Because we all remember the videos we saw 
of people in sort of the, the restaurants, bars along Las Olas Boulevard, where we like to go ourselves. You know, it's a wonderful place, except when there's a pandemic and you saw the young people, people 20 to 40 or so, standing outside, no masks, uh, drinking, not observing social distancing. Is that a thing of the past now? We've seen a significant decrease in that uh, last weekend. Uh, Hollywood had a sweep with code enforcement and law enforcement. Eleven businesses were shut down in, in one weekend. And, and the word is out that we will shut the businesses down if they're allowing that to happen. Uh, one of the trends that we find also is that many of these younger people uh, get affected and take it home. According to Dr. Paul Attachi, 60 to 80 percent of the spread is now within families. Uh, so it is, it is really important that young people understand that uh, they're not immune to this, and when they get ill, they take it to their family. Mayor, I want to ask you about the practical aspects of this enforcement effort, because you have a dashboard now, so anyone in the public can go on to this dashboard and see not only which businesses have been cited or warned, but right down to the complaints, uh, in many cases listed, a person verbatim calls in with a complaint. And there are literally hundreds, as we speak right now, that are still under investigation uh, that may not be closed for, what, a week, a month? Uh, talk, if you would, to the, the practical aspects of, of this enforcement deluge, and how do you do that in a way that, that it really is a consequence? So the, the important thing here is that the 311 number where folks are able to call to tell us what they're seeing uh, that's wrong out there is handled through our cities. We have an interlocal agreement with all our cities across Brock County, actually most of them, not every single one, and they act as the enforcement arm for this. They're to get out to these businesses within 24 hours, and they get out much quicker than that. Uh, one of the problems in terms of some of those that are pending is that they have not been entering the data uh, as quickly as we'd like for them to, and that's being improved. Uh, what we find is that there were 3,621 complaints that were substantiated, uh, 974 warnings were given, and 89 citations were issued to these businesses. So we're being very effective in terms of our enforcement out, in, out there in the public. And we're now warning uh, those who are in the public, uh, individuals, uh, for not wearing facial uh, covering, and, and we'll probably get to more enforcement on that uh, shortly if we're not seeing the compliance. Yeah. Mayor Holness, uh, we know from your history uh, that you are a person of great social conscience. You care especially for the disadvantaged and a lot of poor people. Uh, and on August 1st, a lot of those people have a rent check coming due, and they're not going to be able to pay it. Now, a lot of that is a federal responsibility, but what about Broward County? Can Broward County help those people pay their rent and uh, prevent them from being evicted? Yes, we are working with our cities right now to utilize a large percentage of our CARE Act to help our small businesses who never got any of the federal funds directly, and also to help those who have not been able to pay their rent. So there's rental assistance coming. It will start in early August. Mayor, you, uh, you spoke a little bit earlier this week about the ICU capacity. Uh, numbers, the hospital numbers in South Florida have been a little interesting this week in that hospital admissions are actually slightly down, but the ICU occupancy is at a record level. Give us the status, if you would, on, so on Broward County's ICU capacity at this moment. 
So I spoke earlier with uh, Gina Santorio uh, from Broward Health, and, and they're seeing a, a flat trend and some trend in downwards. Uh, today they have 20% ICU availability, and med surge they have 40%. Uh, they're doing much better uh, than Memorial. Memorial, being on the border with uh, Miami-Dade, uh, is seeing a large percentage uh, of uh, utilization there. 40% uh, of the cases they have are actually coming up from Miami-Dade County. So they're in a little bit of a different situation. But overall, uh, today we have 80% uh, availability, uh, occupancy for med surge and 93.9% uh, for ICU. So there's some room there. The hospital will speak to you on uh, that's being beds that are staffed. They can uh, surge and go higher with their numbers by utilizing additional space if need be. Uh, but that's where we stand today. Uh, Gino told me that he expects that for uh, until midweek it will stay where it is and then probably see a decline. Yeah. So we're, we're hoping for that. Uh, Mayor Holness, on Friday, I was at the Broward County Courthouse where a state representative from Claremont, name of Anthony Sabatini, filed a lawsuit on behalf of a gym owner out in Plantation. They believe that your mask order, your various executive orders are unconstitutional. That'll be settled in court, but I want you to hear uh, what the state representative had to say. Well, all right, we don't have the sound. What he, what he said was essentially, Broward County really just tell us, you know, to act responsibly. We don't want to be ordered to do this because it violates our rights as Americans. Again, what, what's your response to that? You know, in, every civil, in any civil society, you're going to have to have laws and rules and regulations. Uh, it certainly is not violating anyone's uh, constitutional right. And if we don't take action, then a lot more people are going to die. That's not something that I want to be responsible for. Uh, so we're taking the action. Our attorneys are reviewing uh, that lawsuit and, and will act, act accordingly. That lawsuit filed by that same attorney and state rep in several places around the state. Mayor Dale Holness, Broward County, appreciate your time today. Always good to see you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Mr. You. Mayor. I want to say one last thing, please. Those who have recovered from the virus, contact oneblood.org. For, to donate uh, uh, plasmas, that is very helpful. You may be able to sell, save someone's life. Absolutely. Point well taken. We appreciate it. All right, Mayor, thank you. Just one month now before the start of school and one South Florida school superintendent taking a strong stand against kids going back into the classroom. Broward Superintendent Robert Runcie is putting schools online and he is right here to talk about it with us next. Welcome back. Quickly, we want to take you to some live pictures now from Selma, Alabama, where the body of civil rights icon John Lewis, congressman from Georgia, is making his final trip across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The bridge, the site, of course, of Bloody Sunday, a bloody attack of police and law enforcement on Lewis 55 years ago as he tried to cross the bridge in a civil rights, voting rights march. It is a poignant moment. Um, those of us who were alive in 1965, I mean, I vividly remember the pictures of this and of the highway patrolman, the Alabama highway patrolman, beating the protesters, the demonstrators who were nonviolent, who did not fight back. And one who was badly injured was John Lewis. He had a concussion uh, from the beating. 
uh, it did not stop him. Uh, he, nothing really stopped John Lewis. He continued on, served for decades in Congress from Georgia and was considered the conscience of the Congress. And the same bridge, also the site years later and just last year for the anniversary where Congressman Lewis took activists and his colleagues from Congress arm in arm in a show of force and a show of love and a show of civil rights crossing that bridge 55 years later and there he goes now one final time and we should note that among those who are going to be greeting the caisson on the side of the bridge are alabama state troopers who are going to accompany the body of john lovis who was born in alabama across the state honoring him with respect As right, we come so back to South Florida right now, one of the most complicated and consequential decisions for every parent and student in South Florida, how will education happen come the start of the school year next month? Early this month, President Trump, you may recall, said that schools should open on time with the students and teachers in the classroom. And Florida Secretary of Education quickly issued an order saying exactly that, but there was pushback immediately Broward Superintendent of Schools, Robert Runcie, was the first to say no way he would bring students and teachers back until he could guarantee their safety and health. And the superintendent is live with us via Skype from Fort Lauderdale. Good morning, Superintendent. Your decision to put schooling 100% virtual next month, uh, a pretty bold move, the first in South Florida. And if you would start by really kind of digging down and how on earth is that going to happen? Uh, thank you, Michael, and I'm glad to miss you guys and great to be on your show this morning. Um, let me just say when we had to pivot with just a week's notice to go from classroom-based instruction to uh, virtual distance learning, um, that, was a, that was a big challenge for us. And we know there were inconsistencies um, in what our parents and students experienced and what they expected. So what we've been doing over the summer um, is having a laser-like focus on how we would be able to change that experience uh, for e-learning. So we're doing about four or five different things. Number one, um, this summer is primarily dedicated to extensive, serious training for all of our teachers um, so that they can develop the skills to use the tools and the platforms and better engage students. Number two, um, instruction is expected to incorporate live instruction. Um, there was variability and questions about that um, during the last 12 weeks of school. Um, it has to be live instruction. Um, three, um, we are creating flexibility um, for our students and families. Um, at the elementary level, we will have a morning session that will go from about 8 to 2, um, and then we'll have another session that will go from 2.30 to about 8.30, uh, where students will be able to read the same type of instruction. Um, it will be able to accommodate parents we know um, who may not have um, an alternative and they need to be there with their young children when they're online. So we're trying to accommodate our, our families as well. At the secondary level, we're providing additional um, support um, after hours uh, where there'll be um, teachers and educators in core subject areas that will be able to assist um, students and their families with work. Um, we're also allowing our teachers 
um, to teach e-learning and work from their classrooms. Uh, many have requested that. So we're putting a lot of things in place to make sure that we change that experience. But given the double-digit um, infection rates that exist in Broward County, we don't see a feasible path um, to open our schools any other way on August 19th. It is going to take a community-wide effort. Folks got to get real serious about changing their behaviors, wearing masks, practicing physical distancing, washing hands, taking every precaution we can, staying yeah. away from large yeah. crowds so we can get those rates down so we can open our schools, which we desperately need to do. Yeah, the infection rate I think we just saw from this last couple of days in Broward is 14.9%. I mean, really, there's no way that you could ask teachers, students to go back into the schools with an infection rate like that. And frankly, the science seems to be um, uh, not so certain about the ability of children 10 and older as vectors spreading uh, coronavirus. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think last week, um, as you may know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Florida chapter, sent a letter to the governor um, indicating that they were very concerned about the state's overall infection rate of 14.25%. Um, they indicated that you shouldn't consider opening schools until you get that infection rate down to three to 5% range. We are way far from, from that. So that's a, that's a huge challenge. Also, I would add that when we hear examples of other countries, whether you know it be Denmark, Taiwan, Norway, and Singapore, and many of the other countries that folks tend to talk about that have opened, they have opened their schools under a whole different set of circumstances within the community. In those situations, they have gotten community spread under control. They have extensive testing to be able to monitor and contain outbreaks. Um, we need all of those things in place, the systems, the infrastructure to be able to do that. We were pleased last week to work with our Florida Department of Emergency Management to offer three of our schools as sites where individuals in Broward County could go and get testing. That's a Blanche Ely High School, Dillard High School, MacArthur High School. They're open um, during the day. Um, they're going to be doing that for about 10 days, about 1,100 um, tests per day at each of those sites. Superintendent, we got to do everything. Can I, in the, in the short time that we have, I just want to raise some of the things that we've been hearing, some of some of the concerns. A is the digital divide that some kids, some families might have to make sure that they have the tools they need to participate in this distance learning. And, and the other real concern we have is from working parents, parents who must go to work and all of a sudden are faced with a, a giant hole in what to do for child care if their kids are going to be in the house, not old enough to take care of themselves. Will you address those, please? Yeah, sure. On the digital divide, I can tell you that Broward County has been in a really good position uh, relative to many other districts around the country. Um, we have issued um, over 100,000 computing devices. Any student um, and family that wants a computer and needs one, we will provide it to them. We've also negotiated discounted um, low-cost internet service from AT&T and Comcast. Um, that's lower than $10 a month uh, for families. And then we recognize that there are, uh, we have students out there, they have housing instability, almost 5,000 homeless students. Um, and so we've also provided free mobile hotspots to students who need them as well. So we're doing all we can to make sure that we close the digital di divide piece. And I believe 
um, we'll, we'll continue to make some really good headway at that. As far as childcare is concerned, yes, that's a huge issue. Um, it is not something that the school district can solve in and of itself. We are an educational institution. We are not a child care, um, we're not in a child care business is our primary function. Um, that is gonna also take a community-wide effort to resolve. It's my understanding that up to 50% of the child care centers in Broward County have closed since this pandemic. There needs to be an infusion of funds to help restart and build that capacity in our community so that that can become available for all our families. Robert Runcie, we really appreciate your time this morning. Wish you luck. August 19th is the day that uh, this experiment begins and we hope it is successful with your leadership. Uh, we believe it will be. Thank you so much. Thank you. The key metric to watch has always been those hospital numbers. And in South Florida, they are in red flag territory this week. A view from the ICU is next. This week, COVID-19 patients took up eight out of every 10 hospital beds in Miami-Dade and Broward, and nine out of every intensive care beds was a COVID-19 patient. And policymakers have been laser focused on maintaining that critical care ability and understanding what that takes is key. Dr. David De La Cerda is the ICU medical director at Miami-Dade's Jackson Health System, Skyping with us today with a view from the front lines. Doctor, great to have you with us. Morning. Good morning, thank you for having me here. Uh, Dr. De La Cerda, how busy, how full is your Jackson ICU today? We are extremely busy. I think we are busy that we've been in there since the COVID-19 started. We are adding new ICUs. As you know, Jackson is a large hospital, so we're able to add new ICU beds, but we're reaching like 100% capacity pretty soon. You know, doctor, one of the things that we hear from the different sources where we get data and stats and numbers is that slowly, statewide, the numbers seem to be plateauing, too early to tell. Hospital admissions in some places have gone down, uh, but then ICU this week in Miami-Dade has been in a record number, and that is always the metric that is the key for policymakers. What, can you just sort of make sense of what we feel is mixed messaging currently and what the trend line is? You know, I'm not surprised with that. So what happened usually, the ICUs are the lead, the last place that we see that is going to get better. These patients are really sick, so they can stay in the ICU for two or three weeks. And then you keep adding more patients. So we are going to first see less positive, uh, negative cases and positive cases in the community. I apologize. So less positive cases in the community and less, less admissions to the hospital and finally less ICU use. ICU is the last one we'll see. That's the same case last time because of the resources that we use and how sick those patients are. Yeah. Dr. De La Cerda, uh, your boss, uh, Carlos Magoya, CEO at Jackson, has said repeatedly over the last couple of weeks that maybe the biggest challenge for you at the, in the ICU and in the ER and throughout the hospital is staffing uh, because uh, he has told us that it takes basically two medical personnel uh, for every COVID-19 patient. How are you doing on staffing? Do you have enough doctors and nurses? You know, staffing is a major issue, as he pointed out. So, yeah, usually in a floor, one nurse can see six patients. In the ICU, it's probably one to one or one to two patients. 
So our nurses are in a, in a serious burnout situation. We got 33 nurses from the state that really helped a lot. Physicians, we didn't increase any. So at this point, we have the same amount of physicians that we had before. We're just trying to change our schedule so we can go home for a day or so and then come back. But that, yeah, it's a major burnout that we're having. You know, what I'd like to hear from the, the medical director of ICU, I'd like to hear you, uh, what would you ask the governor? He was here, he was at Jackson a week and a half ago. Some residents were there at this press conference and didn't really get to ask questions there. Uh, the governor talked about sending staffing and nurses and 17 and 30 is 47,000 vials of remdesivir and seems to be supplying what Miami-Dade and Broward are asking for. What do you need for the governor? What would you like to see the state provide that you perhaps are not getting? No, one will be the nurses. Second, right after that meeting, I was able to actually talk to him in person. And I, I suggest that we bring respiratory therapists, RTs, so we don't know much about them. They are the ones really managing the mechanical ventilation, the high flow systems and so forth. And they are also getting burned out. So respiratory therapist, I talked to him about that and he promised he would actually reach out and bring more respiratory therapists to Miami and Jackson Memorial. What does that mean, respiratory therapies? What, what is that? You know, respiratory therapy is really the one that go to the, to the mechanical ventilation, the breathing machine, make the changes, clean the patient's secretions, put the new medications. They are the ones doing respiratory physical therapy with the patient so the secretions gets better. They are really in the front lines and, and we are not talking about them too much. And again, one of these uh, respiratory therapies can have six patients. Yeah. So they are really important to us in the ICU, extremely important we, for the management of these systems. We, we understand. Finally, doctor, let me ask you this question. A minute ago, you mentioned burnout. I mean, I just can't imagine as a medical professional, you are familiar with death. There's sometimes nothing you can do to prevent it. But in this situation with COVID-19, family is not there, a priest is not there, a rabbi is not there to hold a hand to help somebody, you know, pass on from this world. So it's up to you. Uh, how hard is that? You know, it's really hard. We never encountered this in the past. We were really open to talk to families and now we are the physician, the nurse, and also the family members. So we have to be in contact with the families. We call them every afternoon. We're using system like FaceTime or Zoom so they can see their loved ones. But at the end, they are alone, and we are there for them, uh, giving their hand and try to do the best we can do for them. So good of you to join us this morning, Dr. De La Sera, from what looks like the hallway at the hospital. We really value it is. your time. <laughs> we, it is. we thank you, doctor, and we hope you get a little rest uh, at some point today. Thank, thank you, you for your much. service. Thank you. All right, up next, one of the candidates for Miami-Dade mayor who wants to go back into that job, Alex Manolis, is going to join us next. The leading candidates in the race to be Miami-Dade's next mayor are three sitting commissioners and the man who was mayor a generation ago. Alex Manolis was the mayor of Miami-Dade from 1996 to 2004. Of course, much has changed in the last 16 years that he's been out of office, but Mr. Benella says he's ready for another shot at running Miami-Dade County government. He is with us today by Skype. Uh, Alex, good, or good afternoon now. Glad to see you. How are you? Hey, Glenna, Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? All right. Um, Alex, uh, in a virtual town meeting on black issues on Thursday, which I watched, uh, you said, I am not here again just to get the title. 
I want to do big issues. Give us one or two examples of the big issues and what you would do about them. Dealing with disparities, like I announced on Thursday, there are real economic housing security disparities in this county, especially among black and minority communities. Transportation, Michael. Uh, uh, I laid out a very bold agenda 20 years ago for the future of transportation in this county. And to see how that money has been misspent, including by some of the very commissioners running for office today, that's a big issue. Housing, the skyrocketing cost of housing. What's been done about that over the last uh, uh, 10 years? And now look at the lack of leadership that we've had surrounding COVID-19. The fact that we have not been able to speak with one very clear voice to give guidance to this community. Uh, those are some of the big issues uh, that I plan to tackle. I'm not running because I want the title. Uh, I'm at a stage in my life where I want to give back. It's about the service, and I'm ready for the task. COVID-19 COVID will be what colors everything, I think, going forward. But you mentioned the transportation tax, and that has been such a big theme of your campaign. You were behind the half-penny tax in the last uh, 18 years, $3 billion. That was supposed to be an expansion of Miami-Dade. Uh, transportation and instead was used to plug holes. And I guess my biggest question is, as you saw this happen, and if you thought this was mismanagement or more, what took you 16 years to get back in the game? Oh, I was a clear voice on that. In fact, in, in meetings with many of the uh, officials at the county now, and I was telling them that uh, the way that money was being spent was not how voters wanted to do it. Voters wanted expansion of rail. Uh, the, the new money was supposed to be for new projects. So I was very clear about my my position on that issue. The issue, though, Glenna, that for me was the most motivating issue came two years ago when the county decided against expanding rail south. You all remember the debate along the South Dade busway. Uh, and I made my position very clear then that the people of South Dade deserved rail. Uh, and one of my main priorities right now is to reverse that decision away from that what they call BRT, bus rapid transit, and to bring rail to South Miami-Dade County and on the North Corridor as well. Well, uh, it was about 20 years ago when you were the principal advocate for a half penny for transit improvements. Now, granted, there was one big project that was completed, um, and that was the completion of Metro Rail out to MIA. And that was promised, and that was done. But, you know, for most people, they say you overpromised and underdelivered. What's what Quite to the contrary, Michael. And there was a lot more than just one big promise. We gave free public transportation to everyone over 65. People mover was free. Uh, we made that a free service here in Miami-Dade County. We expanded bus service miles by over 8 million miles. And in addition, what you mentioned, the very last expansion uh, of rail in this county was approved under my administration. Big accomplishments in a very short period of time because we didn't start collecting that half penny until 2003 and I left in 2004. It's what's happened afterwards. That's the real story here, the misspending. We think it's upwards of a billion and a half dollars. And two of my opponents have been at the very forefront of that misspending. And that's why we have the gridlock that we have today, that's why we have the frustration on part of voters, and that's what I'm seeking to change. You know, the, um, the COVID-19 issue is going to be 
really compromising to the next budget that the next mayor is going to have to deal with. Um, as you, it, it's really much easier to sit and objectively look at what's going on than to be in the seat and real time have to make those decisions. But <coughs> what would you do differently than Mayor Jimenez is doing now as far as managing this COVID crisis? Well, Glenna, first of all, we need to speak with one voice when there's a crisis. Um, and I did that when I was mayor. I managed 22 hurricanes. People remember that. I managed the aftermath of 9-11, which has a lot of parallels with this situation we're going now, uh, the Gianni Versace murder, uh, many crises. And what I would do is I would work with my municipal colleagues, not in spite of them. And I think that's, what's, that's the number one thing that I would do differently, is I would pick up the phone, work with my colleagues, and make sure that when we would announce whatever recommendations are made to the public, that it's one voice, it's a clear voice, it's a consistent message, it's comforting, but it's firm at the same time. That's what I did as mayor, and that's the one thing I would do different now if I was managing this crisis. Alex, uh, as you well know, as we all know, the office of Miami-Dade mayor is nonpartisan. It's neither Republican nor Democrat. You, however, are a Democrat, and Democrats with some long memories go back to 2000 when Al Gore ran for president. And you promised to support him, but in the final weeks of the campaign, you went to Spain, you really didn't do much for him, and he, of course, continues to resent it and, in a sense, blame you, lost by 537 votes. What would you say to any Democrat who says, boy, he, he just simply welched on Al Gore? Well, I think facts matter, and 20 years have gone by. And some believe, for example, that I had the power to uh, continue with the recount, that I could have ordered the canvassing yeah. board to have finished that process. And that simply wasn't the fact, as you, as you well know, um, Michael. In fact, an audit, I think the Miami Herald did an audit years after that showed had that recount continued, Al Gore would have lost even more votes here in Miami-Dade County. So I understand the criticism. Yes, there was a trade mission that I was on in the month of October that was not done deliberately, uh, but let's get the facts straight. And the fact is that neither as mayor before or the current mayor has that kind of authority over the canvassing board, which is an independent entity. Speaking of independent entities, uh, the county just the last couple of weeks went through a really difficult time trying to come up with resurrecting an independent review panel for allegations of police misconduct. I know you've watched that. You actually uh, supported such an idea that this mayor vetoed for various reasons. How would you do that? And what are your views? I know you laid out, you briefly talked about uh, ideas for the black community, and certainly that would qualify as one of those. But how, how would you change what is going on right now that is largely community-driven? Well, Glenna, I supported, and in fact, under my administration as mayor, we had an independent review panel. And in 2002, I worked closely within Congresswoman Meek and Commissioner Roll to actually give that panel additional authority, including subpoena power. I think that's an important first step. A lot of other things need to happen as well. But let me also be very clear that I don't support defunding the police either. I think one issue is not inconsistent uh, with the other. On the contrary, when I was mayor, 
I gave our police department more resources uh, for, for example, our robbery intervention detail, our ta tactical narcotics teams. We brought uh, violent crime down by 44 percent. So there's a lot of things we could do differently in, in recruiting. Uh, I support a national registry for police recruits. There's a lot of things uh, we can do, but it's interesting that we're talking today about an independent review panel when we had one 20 years ago. Many people thought we were kind of ahead of our time. So it's interesting that, that we're back at this debate again. Well, the debate will go on, and on August 18th, uh, if you are not the outright winner or any other candidate, then there will be a runoff. And in fact, Alex, if you're in the runoff, we're going to invite you right now. Come on live, and uh, if we can be live in the studio, uh, and in any event, have a debate uh, for this really critical job of Miami-Dade Mayor. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Glenna. Have a great afternoon. Thank you, Sam. Stay tuned. We will be right back. We thank you so much for spending a little piece of your Sunday with us. Remember, we are online 24-7 at Local10.com. And Local10 News is going to be with you through this terrible pandemic every step of the way. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Hope you have a great Sunday.